Well, we've been talking for the last uh, couple of weeks about how the gospel fuels our service. We've talked about how the gospel fuels our giving. And today we want to look at how the gospel also compelled personally the Apostle Paul in his life. So we're, not, we're going to learn not so much from a doctrine today, but from a person, the Apostle Paul himself, as he gives sort of some personal greetings at the end of a book. And so as we do that today, I want you to think about what the factors are that control your life. You know, when we think about something like that, it's a big picture sort of thought, and sometimes we like to maybe break that question down a little bit into the different compartments, categories in our lives. When it comes to fashion, some of you might be motivated by what you see in magazines or in the entertainment world. Those are the things that give us the cues on what fashion is in. Uh, in sports, you might be inspired by a famous athlete, and, uh, and you pay particular attention to how they train. If it's in your vocation, you're driven by other people that have perhaps succeeded in that field. But just in terms of your general way of going about things and thinking about your direction in life, what is it that informs what you do? What is it that informs what you say? What is it that informs what you think? What are the driving factors of your life? What are the, the pistons that fire the engine in your life and, and send you off in a certain direction and, and, and make sure you don't go in another direction? Well, we're going to parachute into the end of the magisterial letter of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 15. If you have your Bibles along with you, I encourage you to turn there this morning. Romans chapter 15. So you have the first four Gospels, once you get to the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, and then you have Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 15, and I want to read for us verses 14 to 33, and just encourage you to follow along as I read. This is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have, been, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room, in, uh, any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, 
I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Bow with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, your word. Lord, these seem to us to just be some personal greetings, some last personal words from Paul to um, the church right at the end of this letter. But you have seen fit by your spirit to place these words into your scripture for all time. And so we thank you and we pray that you would help us to learn principles from these farewell words from Paul. Principles that we can apply to our own lives as we think of the effect of the gospel on us. Pray that you would help us to that end through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we go into this last section of the Apostle Paul's letter, you just, you just need to note that a transition is happening here, and I've already referred to it in my prayer a little bit. And Paul has, at this point in his letter, finished the meat of the letter. With chapter 15, verse 13, just before I started reading, he's finished telling the church what he wanted to tell them. But now he goes back and makes some personal remarks as he ends this letter. And so we have a bit of a transition here, starting at verse 14, into some direct personal remarks. Paul, at this point, has stopped teaching. He's now giving his readers some personal insights. And we find out, especially here, the things that motivated Paul to do what he did. Gives us a unique insight into his life and what drove him. And we can learn what should drive us as believers as we live in this world. What are, what are the factors that ought to control you? So let me just give a quick overview of this section since we're coming right into the middle of a letter here. And then I just want to pick out a few of the things that drove Paul in his calling. In chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning of this letter, he says he's been called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so Paul starts here by addressing the the recipients of this letter, the church at Rome. Now, Paul, unlike some of his other letters, he'd already been at the church, and now he's writing again to them. Uh, in Rome, Paul had never been there. He, he, he didn't start the church there. He'd never even gotten there. But he's heard, he's gotten word back that they are a growing, vibrant church. And so he affirms them. But he says that he wrote this letter to remind them about the great doctrines of the faith. 
he wrote them, it says in verse 15, very boldly by way of reminder. And if you know anything about Romans, you know that this letter contains really some of the greatest truths of Christianity, namely how God justifies sinners by faith in Christ alone apart from works, how there is now no longer any condemnation, how we are now dead to sin, how we are slaves now to righteousness, and then how we ought to live, starting in Romans 12 and following, in those glorious realities, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So once we get here to Romans 15, in verses 15 to 21, Paul describes the content of his ministry, uh, of the gospel, the gospel of God, he calls it, and the goal of his ministry. He says in verse 18, is then the obedience of the Gentiles. That's what he was aiming for. So Paul was appointed by Jesus. Remember Acts 9, that Damascus Road experience? He was appointed by Jesus to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember, as they divided things off, Peter was mostly responsible for getting the Gentiles to the Jewish believers, and Paul's mission was to get it to the Gentiles. And he says, especially in verse 20, in those places where Jesus hadn't yet been named. And now that his goal has been completed, Paul says he will, he'll get to come to Rome finally, on his way to visit Spain. So lots of geographical stuff here. No, Paul, he's sort of um, west of the, and, and north of the Mediterranean. Um, but over to the west is Spain, to the way west. But in between there, you would have to pass through Rome. And so he says, on the way to Spain, that's where I want to go, but I, but I really want to get to Rome, and so I am going to have a chance to visit you. And so he writes to tell them that he's on his way, as soon as he finishes one other thing. And that is to take some money that he's been collecting back to the poor of the church in Jerusalem. And we talked a lot about that if you were here last week. Paul, in his missionary journeys, was taking up a collection because the, the, the church, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, um, were having a rough time of it. They weren't doing too well materially. So that's a snapshot of this passage. It's basically a summary of his plans for the next little while before he comes to visit them. It's sort of like the missionary reports that we sometimes get. I'm going to be seeing you in a little while, and here's my itinerary in the meantime. But within this part of the letter, we can also learn some things as Paul describes some of the motives for why he does what he does. We learn something about what drives Paul, what, what compels Paul. There are three main factors here that I'm going to suggest that controlled Paul throughout his life. And then three applications or implications of how those factors drove Paul to action, what they led him to do. The first is that Paul was driven by his commission by his divine assignment. By this I mean that Paul was very aware of the specific assignment that God had placed on his life. And, and Paul did everything he could in his power, especially in God's power, to fulfill that calling. We see that there in verses 15 and 16. I have written to you so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gets even more specific in verse 20. He says, I made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He was called to get, in whatever means possible, the gospel to the Gentiles, and especially in those places where people had not yet heard the name of Christ. 
Paul was very clear on what God had called him to do. In Acts 26, verses 17 and 18, when he gets an opportunity to, to re- recall his, how he was saved to King Agrippa, he, he, he talks there about his conversion experience, and he quotes Jesus as telling him that he is sending Paul to the Gentiles. So Acts 26, verses 17 and 18, he says, um, Paul has been sent, Jesus is sending Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's why he was sent. He was sent to open the eyes of the Gentiles who were once in darkness, who were once blinded. That place where we all once were. Paul's divine commission from God was to help people's eyes be opened. He was being used of the Spirit of God to take the blinders off. He was being sent to the Gentiles to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul knew without a doubt what God had recreated him to do. He was a minister of Christ, Jesus to the Gentiles. God gives each of us a task to do once we become believers. Now we don't all have exactly that same commission that Paul had to go to places where Christ has not yet been named. Although some of you might have that call, if not now, you might yet in the future. Trevor Douglas, one of our church family missionaries, has been called to do exactly that in the Philippines. He's been called to translate the Word of God, but he's also been called to go into those regions where the gospel has not yet been heard, where Christ has not yet been named. I pray there are going to be some of you that would receive that calling and that would risk your lives to go to places where Christ has not yet been named. But all of us have received that same general commission. And we've received it from Jesus himself. Remember Jesus' last words of the gospel. They're not to a certain small group of people. They're to everyone. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Or in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That doesn't include us yet. We're kind of off the hook. And even to the remotest parts of the earth. So that includes everywhere where we might go. There is no part of the earth that's immune to this. You are called to go and to be a witness of Christ wherever you are. And chances are, even the people you see every day might be people to whom Christ has not yet been named. Except maybe as a, as a cuss word or something like that. It might be in your office. It might be at work. It might be, might be that telemarketer. It might be your neighbor. It might be someone at school. It might be someone on your sports team. Wherever it is, there might be someone that you encounter to whom Christ has not yet been named. To which you are divinely commissioned to share the gospel. And, the, and there's a promise at that, just in case you think, I can't do that. Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not on your own as you do that. Just as Paul writes about what drives him, the Spirit of God wants you to give witness to Christ. You can do that in remote parts of the world, or you can do that in your own world with the people you meet from day to day who do not know Christ. Be reminded of the commission and the call that God has placed on your life once you repented and put your trust in Christ. Well, that leads right into the second factor that controlled Paul's life and ministry. 
Paul was compelled by his commission, and Paul was also, though, driven by the gospel. We've been saying this over the last number of weeks. It's the gospel that ought to be the controlling factor of everything that we do as believers. It's the gospel that has transformed you. It's the good news of God sending his son to save you from the just punishment for your sin and to reconcile you to himself through Christ. That gospel ought to be the controlling factor in your life. We see that in this passage very clearly. Paul's ministry was compelled by the power of the, of the gospel. Paul cannot get enough of the gospel. He's experienced it in his own life, and then the gospel now forms the content of his message wherever God sends him. Verse 16, Paul ministered in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Verse 19, in talking about uh, the breadth of his ministry all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, if you're wondering what Illyricum is, it's present-day Albania, He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Paul was so compelled by his commission and by the gospel to bring the good news to those who had no news of him. He he knew the gospel was the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16. This is what drove him in his life. His, we could say, was a gospel-driven ministry. Oh, that we might be a gospel-driven church. Oh, that you would be a gospel-driven Christian, so transformed by the undeserved grace of God that you just can't let it go, that it drives you um, towards holy living so much that it will make you look distinct from the world, that it moves you to worship God because he saved you, that it compels you to share this good news with others, that you just can't keep it contained in, your, in yourself, but that you just had to get it out. That it controls your entire life until you meet God in glory. Are you compelled by the gospel? Let me show you quickly how Paul outlines the gospel here in Romans. In chapter 1, verse 18 to 320, we have the preamble to the gospel. Very depressing reading, those first starting at chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, which can all be summarized by the word sin. It says things in there like, there is none who is good. No one. Just pointing out that sin is a reality and that it's universal, that everyone is under condemnation when faced with God's law. There's no one good if you measure yourself that way. Sin invites God's wrath, which leads to physical and spiritual death. Everyone needs to realize their hopeless position before they are ready to hear the hope of the gospel. You can't hear the good news of the gospel until you know the bad news of your own condition. That's why Paul wrote those first three chapters. Only when we get to chapter 3, verse 21, do we start to see the good news. This is where the righteousness that we don't have and desperately need shows up. Shows up in some wonderful words at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now, everything that came before is bad, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, has been manifested. It's an alien righteousness. We have no good in ourselves, but there's an alienness, there's, there's a righteousness that comes from someone else, somewhere else, someone else comes from outside of our own efforts to be right from God. 
God freely gives us that righteousness in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross as our substitute. He became sin for us. In dying, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin and and now God justifies us. And because Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice through his death and in his resurrection, we are now declared to be righteous. And not only does God declare us to be right with God, he also awakens our faith so that we can believe. He, he takes those blinders off. The God of this world has, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But Jesus comes and awakens our faith so that we are able to believe. And then he sanctifies us. He, he makes us holy through the Holy Spirit so that we grow to be more like Christ every day and receive the gift of eternal life. Well, that's a Reader's Digest version of Romans 1 to 14. But that is the gospel. That's this gospel that compelled Paul. And, and if that's too hard to remember, uh, Mark Dever in his book, Deliberate Church, thankfully, I think, for myself anyway, summarizes the gospel as God, man, Christ, response. You can hang the gospel on those four words. God as our holy creator, and, and he's our righteous judge. Man, we, we rebelled against God and thereby alienated ourselves from God, thus exposing ourselves to God's righteous wrath, which will, by itself, if we don't include the other two, banish us to eternal hell. But God sent Christ. There's the third word. God, man, Christ. God sent Christ, fully God and fully man, to die the death that we deserved. And the only saving response, there's the fourth one, to this good news is to repent of our sins and to turn to God and to believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness from sin. If you want to share the gospel, that's a great outline for you. God, man, Christ, response. This is the gospel. As I say this, though, I fully recognize that there might be some of you here today for for which all this stuff is still totally out there. You've never heard this. And so my invitation to you is now that you have, now that you have heard this, that you would put your faith in Christ. You would recognize your own hopeless condition and recognize that you are uh, done without Christ and his work. That you would put your faith in Christ and be transformed by this good news. If you want to know more about that, please come and see me. I usually stand underneath the light post that's in the foyer there. I'd love to talk to you about that. If you are a Christian, I encourage you to keep these great realities at the ready and allow them to launch you forward into a life that passionately reflects these realities. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It says in Romans 12, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul was driven by the gospel. Thirdly, I see here that Paul was driven by Christ's accomplishments through him, through Paul. Again, this is related to those first two points. It was Christ who commissioned Paul. It was Christ who brought the gospel into effect. So we're not surprised to find that Paul was driven by the work of Christ. In that sense, Paul was Christ-centered. It was Christ who forever changed the trajectory of Paul's life. Christ was everything for him. That's why it's Paul who writes things like uh, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. Is uh, for me to live is Christ, right? And to die is gain. Or Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, whatever things were gained to me, I count as, counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And he can say this, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 1 Corinthians 1.23, I mean, we can just go on and on, but that one says, we, we preach Christ crucified. That was the content of his message. It was all about Christ. For me to live is Christ, period. And so in Romans 15, when Paul talks about his own ministry, we find the same thing here. This, this whole section between verses uh, 14 and 21 hangs on, on verse 17, really, where it says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So make sure you read all the words of that verse. Paul does indeed have reason to be proud. He has accomplished great things. He has brought the gospel all the way from Jerusalem up. This is about 1,400 miles away in Illyricum. It's not just around the corner. He has fully preached the gospel of Christ. He has completed his assignment from Christ. And so he could take great credit. I mean, we often look at Paul as a great hero of the faith. We all want to be like Paul, but look who, whom he credits here. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud. I don't just have reason to be proud of my work. It's in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. What a glorious verse. All the credit for everything that Paul did, and he did lots, goes only to Christ. And it was Christ's accomplishments, not his own accomplishments, not ever his own accomplishments, that resulted in the obedience of the Gentiles. So much to learn from Paul here. In a world that's all about self-actualization, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-gratification, self-this and self-that, in a world where it's all about me, in a world where it's all about my rights and my opinion, we as Christians have a distinct Different message. Paul always moved it away from himself and toward Christ. His focus was on what Christ accomplished through me. Remember, it's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us. We get to be instruments of Christ, servants of Christ. We get to be his ambassadors doing his work. So I encourage you this morning to think high and exalted things about Christ, the Son of God. And about God the Father who in His grace sent Christ. About God the Holy Spirit who bears witness to Christ. And then let Him be the one that drives your actions. The one that controls what you do. The one that controls what you say. The one that controls what you think. We want that to be said of us not only individually, but we also want that to be said of us collectively. As we function as a church in this community. Anything we do to reach out into the community cannot be driven only by a desire for social action, only by a desire to fight for justice, only a desire to feed the poor. Instead, we are compelled by what Christ has accomplished through us, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Psalm 115, verse 1. We always want to point to Christ. Paul was controlled by the divine commission to spread the good news to the Gentiles. 
His ministry could be described as gospel-driven, as compelled by Christ. But just look again now at what this compelled him to do. If this was his motivation, how did it play out? What did it cause him to do besides, of course, obey his gospel-driven, Christ-centered calling? Well, while it led him to spread the gospel outward wherever he went, which, which gave him a great deal of fame in that region, he, he became very well-known. You have to see here that it also drove him back to the church. He never went out on his own. He always recognized that he was sent by the church. It, and so now it drives him back to the church. It drives him back to the saints. And you see here that it did it in three ways. And I'll just give those to you very quickly here this morning. The first is that these controlling factors drove Paul to desire the fellowship of the saints. Look again at verse 22. For this, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. He just wants to be with them. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, he's already done what he's been called to do. He's, he's given Christ to all those places where he hasn't yet been named. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Go down to verse 28. When therefore I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy. And look at what he wants. He wants to be refreshed in your company. It's the company of the saints, the companies of the church that gives him refreshment for his soul, strength to carry on. And and so you see here words like, I have longed to come to you. I've enjoyed your company. I want to be refreshed by your company. Paul longed to be with these Roman believers. He wanted to encourage them, but he also wanted to be encouraged and to be strengthened by them. When we understand God's call on our lives, we also understand that God has placed us into a body of believers. And we will have a longing to just be with that body of believers for encouragement, for fellowship, for worship, for refreshing, for prayer for singing, for crying, for sharing, for challenging, confessing, admonishing, even eating together. Just long to do that. Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. As our world seems to be in the middle of a downgrade in morality and all sorts of things, it should drive us more to be together, to encourage one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Psalm 84 says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We used to sing that little chorus once in a while. Do we really believe that it's good to be in God's house for one day? than a thousand days anywhere else. It's better to be in God's house for one day. How about when it's really nice out in the summer? Do you believe that? How about when you're on vacation? Do you believe that? 
You can always find a place when you're away from home to worship on the Lord's Day, can't you? Even though it's not your own body of believers, but you can be encouraged by another body of believers somewhere. How about when sports falls on a Sunday morning? Do you really long to be the saint with the saints on the Lord's Day? Is it really better to be one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere? It was because Paul had a gospel-driven, Christ-centered calling that it drove him to want to fellowship with the saints. Do you long to be in the presence of fellow believers? Do you need it? Secondly, it drove Paul to meet the needs of the saints. Before he gets to Rome, Paul says in verse 25, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, that's when I'm going to leave to Spain by way of you. Paul was not quite done with his work yet before he could visit the Romans. While he was busy bringing the gospel to all these other places, he was also, as we looked at last week, collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And we talked about that from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. These people wanted to serve their fellow believers in Jerusalem by collecting material blessings as a show of gratitude for sending Paul with great spiritual blessings, namely the gospel. Remember, Paul was sent out from the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul says he's going to bring aid to the saints. This is one of the marks of someone that's driven by the gospel. They want to serve the saints. They want to meet the needs of the poor. And they're pleased to do it. They don't do this under compulsion, right? God loves a cheerful giver. And these people were generous to the max. And Paul was too. It gives them pleasure to share. It's important to deal with poverty issues in our cities and around the world, but it's especially important for believers to meet the needs of the saints. Is that one of your desires? Has the gospel had this kind of effect on you? Are you actively looking for a way to serve those Christians that don't share your material wealth, both around the world and even here in our church? Again, the best way to have that burden for the poor is to realize that you were once mired in spiritual poverty. This is a reflection of the gospel again. If it were not for the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ, you would still be hopelessly spiritually poor. Finally, Paul's gospel-driven, Christ-centered calling drove him to request the prayer of the saints for himself. Look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. We often think of, being a Paul, uh, of Paul being a spiritual giant, and rightly so. He had it all together. He was super Christian. Surely he could have prayed for himself on his own behalf, right? Yet here we have Paul asking the church to pray on his behalf. Paul knew full well that the prayers of the saints were effective. He knew that God was sovereign, yet he uses prayer as a way to accomplish his will. And the prayers of Christians on behalf of other Christians is effective to that end. And so here we have a plea from Paul to the church in Rome 
to strive, which literally means to, to agonize is, is the transliteration of the word here, to, to fight together with him in prayer. He wants them to pray for his protection. Interestingly, Paul does, in fact, encounter opposition in Jerusalem and eventually gets arrested. And it's interesting that he does end up coming to Rome just as he wanted to do, but he comes not as a free man, but he comes as a prisoner. He comes in chains. So even Paul's prayers didn't get answered quite in the same way that he might have thought, yet they still got answered. God just answered them in a different way. But what I want you to take out of this is that it's good and right for us to ask our fellow believers to pray with us for situations that we'll be facing. This requires one thing that's often hard, difficult for us, self-sufficient, strong-minded, got-it-all-together North Americans to do, to ask for help. It requires that we be vulnerable with each other. It requires an admission that we are weak, that we are dependent on God, and that we could use some prayer. Paul recognized that being a believer meant he was part of the church. And being part of the church meant that there were other people that would be most glad for the opportunity to support him and to stand behind him, that would love the opportunity to strive together with him in prayer. God has given us the church for this reason. As a believer, you are part of a community. And you can ask the community of the saints to stand with you for the battles that you face. You can ask people in the church to pray that God might help you, and that God might deliver you. God might keep you from temptation. God might protect you, that God might guide you. And so I encourage you not to be afraid to ask for the prayers of the saints. For Paul, his motivation from the gospel drove him toward the church. didn't drive him to to be self-sufficient. It drove him toward believers. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to meet their needs. He wanted them to pray for him. He loved the church, but he not only loved the church, he knew that he needed the church. They were partners with him in his ministry, in his calling. So Paul's life is displayed for us here as an example for us of what ought to motivate our life. That's why God included this, these personal greetings. You know, God might have thought, oh, this is just throwaway stuff. I'll just include the good parts of the letter. No, he included this here too in order to help us. So let's be a people that are controlled by our divine commission, by the commission of Jesus for us. People that are compelled by the glorious gospel of God and people that are driven by the accomplishments of Christ. And may we then seek together as a church, always together, more power in numbers, right? Let us seek together as a church to glorify God as we try to fulfill our calling as ambassadors of Christ in this world bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we can learn from the examples of people that you use to spread the gospel. Hear from the example of Paul. 
Lord, we thank you that you have included this personal section in the Bible. It's surely here to encourage us in a way that reflects the fact that you have saved us. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to think exalted thoughts about Christ, your Son, that you would cause us to think humble thoughts about ourselves. Help us to love the gospel. Help us to love your church. We pray these things because of Christ our Lord. As Paul ended this chapter, I want to end with benediction to you. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen.